6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. I won't bore you with the, the fact situation, it's not important, but there was a circumstance where in this particular case, it was rather dramatic that this particular uh, child was amazingly ungrateful. And as I was pondering that, I got a profound insight. You know, if the child had misbehaved, see, since I have both sons and daughters, I'll be neuter here. I won't mention who it was because they may listen to the tape. But the point is, if the child had misbehaved, broken a rule of some kind, I can deal with that. I can mete out some kind of punishment. Figuratively speaking, you know, take the child to the woodshed. You know, impose some kind of appropriate, hopefully, response to their disobedience. I can deal with disobedience, right? As a father, what do you do with ingratitude? If I have a child who's ungrateful, what do I do? You don't spank the child for that. The other parent might, or I mean, there's other things you might do, but I'm speaking from my point of view. What can I do? Answer. Feel pain. And that's about it. I mean, the problem is broader than just some circumstantial thing. It goes deeper. But the point is, what's my response to feel pain? And as I was contemplating that, you know, the difference between disobedience and gratitude, I was stunned to realize something else. When I am disobedient to the Father, what's he going to do? He can correct me. Gently, if I'm listening, and if as I'm obstinate as I usually am, he has to, you know, get a bigger stick, right? As they say, don't force it, get a bigger hammer, right? <laughs> when I am ungrateful, what can he do? Feel pain. He's a father. And only fathers in this audience can know what I'm talking about. You have to be a father to understand the father heart of God. And I remember sitting, almost crying, as I realized, somehow that my innumerable ingratitudes caused God pain. It really shook me up to realize that a puny thing like myself can cause the God of the universe pain. Blew me away. I'll leave you with that. I'll leave you with that. What do you do about it? Well, I'll talk to him about it for one thing. Remember 1 John 1, 9. That's the Christian's bar of soap. Right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's prepared to scrub the report card clean if we acknowledge it and ask him to. That's a pretty good deal. Still, to understand the Father heart of God. Well, we're off the subject. Verse 5. Isaiah continues, Why should ye be stricken anymore? He's focusing on them. See, it's fifth to the second person. Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. <laughs> even in the English, uh, 
comes across that Isaiah is pretty eloquent. He's obviously speaking spiritually, but he's using physiological terms to dramatize it. I mean, they don't have a small malady, some sore that's got to be healed. From head to toe, they're putrefying with... Well, I won't get more graphic. We don't, <laughs> Isaiah's done it for us. The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint, the sole of the foot even to the head. No soundness in it. Aren't you glad this is Israel's report card, not yours and mine? Or is it? They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. In other words, they're not even treated. Your country is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your land, foreigners devour it in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. The daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a lodge in the garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Daughter of Zion is who? Jerusalem. Jerusalem's an interesting city. It's been besieged 40 times. It has been destroyed 32 times. Since 1948, it's had four major wars. Every time you turn around, they're threatening a jihad. I keep hoping they'll have one because Israel needs the land. <laughs> Every time they have a jihad, the borders get a little bigger. I was talking to some friends about the West Bank. I said, which river? I look at Genesis 15, not Genesis 12, right? Anyway, the daughter of Zion is left in this, you know, is a booth in a vineyard, is a lodge in a garden of cucumbers. Those are all idioms familiar to his readers. As a besieged city. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. Ah, there's that word again. We should have been like Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. Now, I'll leave it up to you to look it up, but in your notes, those of you taking notes, you might put Romans 9, 29. Paul quotes this verse. No big deal, but uh, you might, those of you that want to just... Uh, Take a little by road of your own. You can go to Romans 9 and see what Paul does in verse 29. But the other thing I'd like to deal with, you notice here, he says, we should have been like Sodom and we should have been like Gomorrah. Where is Sodom and where is Gomorrah today? Anybody here from Sodom or Gomorrah? <laughs> That's one reason I was glad to get out of the defense industry because I could see it coming that someday the homosexuals would push to be a recognized minority and therefore be subject to affirmative action. So that all of you that employ employees have the requirement to employ your fair percentage of homosexuals. And I can see that in the defense community starting to happen, and I'm glad to be out of that business. Billy Graham really summarized it. I love his quote many years ago. He said it, spoke of America, but it certainly applies to California. He says, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you look at this country and you realize where we're headed, especially the state of California, it's uh, sad. I'll give you another example that uh, causes me to weep. A friend of mine has a ministry down near Escondido area. He happens to be of a Baptist background, but he has a school for girls who are in trouble. And what I mean by that, girls who are in drugs or that are, uh, you know, in, in, in their middle teens and sleeping around the neighborhood and that sort of thing. If you're a parent and have faced that, it's a tough thing. What do you do? And one of the things you can do, there are a few schools like this that have the facilities where they'll take a gal like that, typically uh, for a, a one-year program, and um, give them the scripture and bring them to the Lord, you know, uh, at least most of them do come to the Lord Jesus Christ while they're there, but they certainly uh, do get the benefit of a good, very rigorous, tough, but well-administered uh, pro program. And they usually have uh, something short of 100 girls down there, and they've done this for years, and the, while the track record isn't impeccable, it's remarkable. 
But what's interesting is the state of California looks at those kinds of facilities and wants to license them. What that means is they've got to have regular smoke breaks, and it means that the boyfriends they were sleeping with that you're trying to separate them from can have rec- has visitation rights, and, on and, go- and they have all these rules that guarantee that the person will not re- return to a spiritual walk. Well, what's interesting is that the state of California violating all the civil rights Ended the premises without proper order, sequestered the files, interviewed the girls without the parents' permission, and uh, have, have, are trying to shut this place down. And that's tragic. They've written the governor. They've done all kinds of things. The state of California, apparently, is quite aggressively hostile to Christian activities. Now, that may not be the governor's personal fault. There's, there's active uh, people on his staff that have taken this on as a challenge of all shapes and sizes. I'm just sharing one. But it's tragic that this uh, Christian operation has written all the churches across the country for help, and the only person that replied and did reply and offered them some alternative facilities and tried to help, apparently generally tried to help, was the Mormon Church in Utah. What a tragic, tragic commentary on the body of Christ in its visible form. The real body of Christ is, of course, invisible, but interesting. I got off the subject again, didn't I? Okay. It's not off the subject. We should have been like Sodom and we should have been like Gomorrah. Now, that's an interesting phrase. Why is it an interesting phrase? Because in Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, it speaks of Jerusalem as Sodom and Egypt. You might turn to Revelation chapter 11 just to pick up another insight as we do this, so it will be useful to you as we go. Revelation chapter 11 speaks the first couple of verses about the rebuilding of the temple. Verse 3 on talks about these two witnesses, these strange characters that, that are witnesses. Then eventually, of course, the Antichrist puts them down. The only celebration on the earth in the book of Revelation is when they send gifts to one another because these two witnesses died. And their dead bodies then lie in the street, right? Verse 8, their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. Now see, what the writer in the book of Revelation is taking for granted, generally, is that you have a command, a mastery of the Old Testament. There are 357 direct quotes of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. So the writer generally assumes that you really have command of the rest of the Bible. Now in this case, though, just to make sure you don't misunderstand that he's speaking metaphorically, notice what he says. It's spiritually called Sodom in one sense, Egypt in another. But just so you don't misunderstand, he also says, where also our Lord was crucified. Was the Lord crucified in Egypt? Was he crucified in Sodom? No. See, in other words, those he's using metaphorically, but so that you don't misunderstand what city are these two are the bodies of these two witnesses lying in. What city? Jerusalem. But it's called Sodom. Why? Because the writer assumes that you know Isaiah, among other places, where Jerusalem is referred to as Sodom, spiritually speaking. Verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. In other words, rulers of Jerusalem. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. Now, obviously, you get from the tone that since Sodom and Gomorrah are a long history. It's back in you know, Genesis 19 that they're you know, rendered into ashes. Verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? Isaiah here is going to take off and attack religious formalism. Now, he is going to attack this rather aggressively, rather eloquently, And you and I, in the comfort of our pews, can look at this and say, well, gee, isn't Israel awful to have been so superficial with their formalism and not really understand the heart, the intent of what was behind this? They were going through the motions, not the realities, right? 
Let's not be so clumsy. Let's recognize that while Isaiah is focusing on Judah, Jerusalem, as we read this, again, it's one of those things that let's keep our antenna up and see if some of this can't apply to ourselves. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. Wait a minute, I thought he ordained all that. Isn't that what Leviticus is all about? The Torah, isn't that what it's all about? All these rules and all these... God is saying, enough already. He says here, I am full. And he's saying that just the way you and I would say that. I am full of the burnt offerings of rams, the fat of fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me... Who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Aha, key word, vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. And by the way, I was intrigued with one variation of this. Incense is an abomination. Another way of translating that, Isaiah calls it the abominable smudge. And you see, the concept of incense, Levitically, is like prayers of the saints. The golden altar in the tabernacle it speaks of intercession, if you will. And, and we'll talk more about that later. But, the, but the, the idea of the incense altar in the tabernacle is the incense. All through the scripture you'll find a, a Levitical uh, symbolism of incense versus prayers. In other words, uh, they're, they're used metaphorically. Well, it's interesting that in this case, the incense or the prayers, if you will, will are like abominable smudge. Now here, living in Southern California, this has a very timely metaphor for us. Now, we, don't, we no longer permit the, what used to be called the old smudge pots. You remember the, to keep the crops from freezing, there, was a, there were techniques that, of course, contributed to the air pollution, so they're obsolete today. But the point is, as I read verse 13, I think of, I think of L.A. on a bad day. But bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abominable smudge unto me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot bear. It is iniquity. Even the solemn meeting. So God is saying here that the very things that he's ordained in the rules and the ordinances, he wants no part of if the heart isn't there. See, obviously, it's, it's not that they should abandon those practices. His point is, of course, is that the heart isn't in it. It's vain formalism. How many of us are guilty of that? How many of us? I encourage you, if you haven't done it recently, I encourage you to read Revelation chapter 2 and 3. The book of Revelation obviously has 22 chapters, but the two chapters that are the richest, most fruitful for you and I are chapters 2 and 3. Seven letters to seven churches, dictated by none other than Jesus Christ personally. And every one of them closes with a key phrase, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the, seven, to the churches. How many of you have an ear? I show of hands? I just thought I'd check, Okay. That letter was written to you and me. Each of the seven letters. He that hath an ear. In other words, it's an individual personal letter. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All seven letters apply to you and me. Not just Philadelphia. Laodicea also. And especially uh, Pergamos. Religious externalism. That's what the Epistle of Galatians is all about. 
I encourage you to do a study of the seven letters of seven churches if you haven't done one recently. You'll discover they're parallel to the seven kingdom parables in Matthew 13. No surprise, the same author gave both. Jesus gave him seven parables in Matthew 13. And he later dictated seven letters to John to include his Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And the parallel of those seven letters is provocative to the seven par- to kingdom parables. Paul wrote 13 epistles that he signed. Three of those are doubles. First and second Timothy, first and second Corinthians, first and second Thessalonians. So if you've got 10 letters, uh, I mean, yeah, if you've got 13 letters and three are doubles, you've got 10 addressees, right? Three of those addressees are pastors. Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. That means there's seven churches Paul wrote. And one of the fascinating discoveries of the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit is those seven letters, seven churches Paul wrote parallel the seven churches in Revelation. And if that is all new to you, I encourage you to get the tapes and do a study. If not, I'm reviewing it because those, that seven-fold description affects you and I today where we live. And that's exactly what Isaiah is focusing on here, that God is a God of relationships, not ordinances. He is interested in substance, not formalities. And so he goes on. It's interesting because here's the God of the Old Testament, the one that has put down all these rules, still saying, hey, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in the heart. Circumcision is of the heart. That's Deuteronomy, not Isaiah, but you're with me. Okay, verse 14. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary of bearing them. And when you spread forth your hands... Ooh, there's a good Pentecostal gesture, huh? Nothing wrong with that, right? And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. God will turn his head, not look. Yea, when ye make my prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil from of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek justice. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now. Verse 18 is this famous verse. You've all heard it so many times. Come now. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Come now, reason together. We've all heard that phrase. What it really means, it doesn't mean like, let's, let's get reasonable. Let's suddenly get logical where we haven't been before. That's not the tone of it. What he's saying is, let's reach an understanding. Let's come to an agreement. You see, come to terms. That's what God's saying. Come now, let's, come, let's reach an understanding. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. What God is offering is a full amnesty, and he's doing it how? By grace, not works. By grace, not works. Now I'm going to suggest to you something. This is Jerusalem's report card by Isaiah. It's starting off in a pretty tough tone, isn't it? Let me ask you a question. Has the church had more illumination than Jerusalem? And how? We have the benefit of far more insight than they had in that day, didn't they? I'm going to suggest to you our failure is larger. Our failure is great. In other words, to the extent they're in trouble, hey, the church has more to be accountable for. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. How is the faithful city become a harlot? It was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. 
Now, this idea of Jerusalem or Israel being a harlot is a common theme in the Scripture. We have uh, in Exodus um, chapter 34, 15, Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1, Isaiah 54, verse 1. We're going to get this theme again and again, the idea that Israel is the adulterous wife of Jehovah. It's an idiom used, especially of Hosea. If you haven't read Hosea recently, if you skim through that, uh, read through Isaiah, Hosea, you'll discover that uh, God uses that idiom of his relationship with Israel, looking at her as the adulterous wife, the harlot. Verse 22, thy silver has become dross, thy wine mixed with water. Now silver Levitically speaks of blood. Uh, silver speaks of redemption. It was the redemption coin in the temple. Silver, the tabernacle, the poles of the tabernacle were on brass sockets, but the tabernacle itself, those gold planks that were put together to become like a portable building, sat on sockets that sat in the ground. The sockets were of silver. The tabernacle was resting on the blood, just like you and I do. We rest. We take comfort. We take our position before the throne of grace, resting on what? The blood of Jesus Christ. Everything in the tabernacle speaks of Jesus Christ. It's a separate study altogether. But the silver here speaks of blood. Here he's saying the silver has become dross. And wine is mixed with water. Now, this is not what that really means. It spoils. It wrecks it. So these are, this is derogatory comments, if you will. Thy princes are rebellious, the companions of thieves. Everyone loveth bribes and followeth after rewards. They judge not the fatherless, neither doth the cause of the widow come unto them. Therefore saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will rid myself of mine adversaries I, and avenge myself and mine enemies. And he goes on. But before he goes on, I want to... Uh, talk about something here. You notice anything about verse 24? Something subtle. Therefore saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. And he goes on to say something. You know something there? How many titles are there? Three. Now, you, I don't want to make too much of this. It might be just for emphasis. It might be rhetorical style with three titles just for emphasis. That's fair. On the other hand, I ponder three titles. And what echoes in my ears is Genesis 2. Let us make man in our own image. Who's he talking to? You see the Trinity in the Old Testament. We're going to discover the Trinity quite visible in Isaiah. And I'm not suggesting this necessarily. It's just a hint. And if, that, if, if you find that intriguing, great. If not, I wouldn't make a big thing of it. But I do find it fascinating that here we see three titles. The Lord, Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Three titles of the same guy or three persons in one. I'll let you mull that over on your own. We'll move on. Verse 25. And I will turn my hand upon thee, thoroughly purge away thy dross, and take away all thy tin. Being an element in the alloy, in effect. And I will restore thy judges as at the first, and thy counselors as at the beginning. Afterward thou shalt be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Is that, is that Jerusalem today? Is that yet future? You bet. Zion shall be redeemed with justice, and her converts with righteousness, and the destruction of the transgressors and of the sinners shall be together, and they that forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks which ye have desired, and ye shall be confounded for the garden that ye have chosen. Now that's a strange phrase. But uh, this has to do, it's not obvious unless you're a student of the Old Testament, when he's talking here about the oaks, 
in the gardens, uh, that doesn't carry a sinister implication unless you understand throughout the Old Testament, God spoke against what he called groves. He forbid Israel to build their altars on the high places, the top of the hill. He also forbid near the altar to have groves. And you may read that throughout the scripture, Deuteronomy elsewhere, all the way through. You'll find that that repeated emphasis. And it sounds a little strange. What does God have to do against, you know, a group of trees? What you and I are not sensitive to is what he's talking about there are phallic symbols. It was the practice among the heathen cultures to, to worship their idols at the top of the hill. And it was... Typically, typically surrounded by trees that were trimmed in the form of phallic symbols. That was an anathema to God. That's why it intrigues me that um, uh, we always talk about Solomon's temple on Mount Moriah. The temple mount is at 740 meters above sea level. It's not at the top. It wouldn't be because God never had the temples at the top of the hill because that was a pagan practice and he never emulated that, obviously. Now, Abraham offered Isaac where? At the top of the hill. The top of the hill is about 770 meters. It's to the north. It's a place that you and I would call Golgotha. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks which ye have desired. See, he's referring to idols. That's not obvious unless you've gotten the background. And ye shall be confounded for the gardens ye have chosen. See, in other words, what's the overtone there is not, nothing wrong with the gardens. He's talking about the choices they've made in the direction of idol worship. Do we have problems with idol worship? I don't think any of you have groves and altars in your home. Or do you? What is an idol? Anything that stands between you and the Lord. Anything you choose in lieu of Him. Anything that causes you to divert your heart from pursuing Him is an idol. And boy, if that shoe pinches, (laughs) deal with it. Verse 30. For ye shall be as an oak whose leaf fadeth in the garden that hath no water. See, those those idioms are derogatory, in effect. Verse 31, and we've done chapter 1. And the strong shall be as wick, and the maker of it as a spark, and... They shall both burn together, and none shall quench them. Ooh. Heavy stuff. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.